once I'd received, I was like, great, finally, I'm into this. I can fit in. I've got the tick of approval. I'm, I'm considered saved. And um, then when I sort of went to use this tongue amongst the, the adults and it just, it just didn't, didn't feel right. And that's, that's when my doubts first started when I was 10. That's Tom Tilley, one of Australia's most recognised journalists. Tom's just written a book about his life growing up in a Pentecostal sect that believed it was the only true church. I always saw my whole life in the church. I never thought, oh, one day I'm out of here. I thought, no, I'm going to try and make this work. I want to be with my family. I want to, I want to meet the Lord in the air. The church was based around speaking in tongues with members believing they could receive the Holy Spirit and speak directly to God in their own divine language. A language that no one knows. What to someone else will sound like a foreign language or a little bit like gobbledygook. Our church believed that you had to have that experience to truly be saved, which set it apart from any other church that we knew. Tom was split between two worlds, with his life inside the church butting up against everything on the outer till there wasn't room for both. I realised I wanted to live a big, beautiful life. I wanted to be open-hearted and to connect with people and feel that passion of life. And I could see that the strictness of the church wasn't letting me do that. Tom's had to question everything in his pursuit of the truth and rebuild himself as a man without God. It's a fascinating story and one that should be heard by anyone struggling to choose the life they want to live. While that might feel really daunting at the start, there is a way through that. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. Tom, one of your earliest memories is of you in church as a three or four year old boy. Do you remember how you felt inside being in that environment at that time? Yeah, I felt very comfortable. I felt very safe um, and I felt really loved. Um, I set the scene for the book lying there on the carpet as a little kid during a Wednesday night meeting and at this hall in Dubbo, um, it was like our second home. We lived just a few blocks up the road and um, probably at least two, sometimes three or four times a week we were at this hall with what was like our extended family, all the other members of the church. Um, we had all these ready-made best friends, the, uh, the other kids of the other parents in the church. Um, all their parents were there. We knew them so well. They'd known us since birth. Um, we were very much all on the same railway tracks of life, living the same schedule, same beliefs, same fun activities, same serious moments. It wasn't that far from the womb. It was it was a warm, friendly, safe, beautiful place. Sounds lovely. What did your church believe? So the thing that made our church unique to most other Christian churches was that it believed that speaking in tongues was clear proof that you were saved, that the Spirit of God was in you. So speaking in tongues is um, in the Bible, happens on the day of Pentecost, and it's this moment where um, God's Holy Spirit is supposedly manifested in these um, men on earth who prayed and spoke in a language they'd never learned before. And so at that time, they spoke out in languages of neighbouring cultures and ethnic groups. So there were people from different parts of the Mediterranean and the, and the Middle East who witnessed this saying, wow, these people are speaking our languages and they've clearly never learned it before. This is absolutely mind-blowing. So that was proof that God was real. Then a slightly different form of speaking in tongues is when you speak out in just a, a language that no one knows. What to someone else will sound like a foreign language or a little bit like gobbledygook is that person's personal language and we believe that that was your own way of directly connecting to God. So instead of going through the normal linguistic programming of formulating sentences, you know, 
dear Lord, please help me pass this university exam. This was supposedly just like a direct connection where you just spoke out and these words just flowed out of your mouth and you connected directly to God. So our church believed that you had to have that experience to truly be saved, which set it apart from any other church that we knew. And put a lot of pressure on you from a young age to be able to speak in tongues. And I know you talk about how everyone around you, your family were already speaking in tongues before you could and felt quite a bit of pressure throughout those young years to come on, I want the Holy Spirit to speak through me because otherwise you weren't going to be saved. So that's a lot of pressure to put on a young kid, isn't it? Yeah, it really was. And I don't think I quite, you know, spotted it straight away as a kid because it was just always a part of our lives. It was something um, we knew everyone else did. We expected it would happen to us one day and tried to push out any doubts about it not happening. Um, so, And was yeah, it also the, the, the fact yeah. that if you had doubts, then it wouldn't happen? Well, yeah, you, exactly. So you start to double double guess yourself. And like, then you start to blame yourself, which is where it can um, get a little bit a little bit dark, really, a little bit sad for a kid who's like, oh, maybe it's my fault if, if, if it's not happening. Yeah. And, you know, you're surrounded by these other kids. And um, as I write, my younger brother, Sam, um, received the Holy Spirit before I did. So he was seven and I was nine and I still hadn't received. So that's how that's how early in our lives this was happening, that we were seeking for this um, so-called gift from God. And it seems like it would often happen in front of the rest of the church. Like there was almost events or moments set up where you were sort of supposed to speak in tongues and that's when it was meant to happen. But that's not how it happened for you the first time. And in fact, when you had a few of those moments, you sort of failed to speak in tongues and then Mm -hmm. had to carry some shame around that because like you said, you then question yourself and you know, does, does God love me? And having to carry that must have been a hell of a thing as a nine-year-old kid. Yeah, it's, you know, when you write the story from an adult perspective, you sort of sense the heaviness. Um, and, it, and it did get heavier later on. But in the early stages, um, it was okay. It was what we were doing. And it was more of like an excitement about yeah. when it would happen. So, um yeah, with, without that adult perspective, it was still very naive and still had a sense of joy and excitement about it. But the pressure was ramping up. But for me, I felt that it happened at this moment in a cabin on the south coast of New South Wales when I was 10. So 10 was ten was a good age because it was like, oh, it wasn't like ridiculous, like when my brother received, he was seven and another friend of ours, Jarrah, was five. We're like, uh, that's lacking a little credibility. So at 10, <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, 10, 10 feels good. But if I'd gotten to like 13, 14, then it would have gotten really awkward. And then you would congregate in church and everyone would speak in tongues at once in their own version of what that was. And you'd be listening out and hearing some of the other kids speaking in tongues thinking, those tongues sound like bullshit. I don't, I don't know if that's real or not. And then, and then realizing that, you know, how legit does my speaking in tongues sound compared to the adults who've obviously been doing it for a longer time? And that whole performative ele- element of it must have been very intense to sit or stand in church with all these people speaking in this language. And that was just a normalized thing. Yeah. And that's why the questions came up so quickly for me because all of us kids sounded ridiculous. So we sounded absolutely non-credible. Yeah. Whereas the adults had these languages that really sounded like full languages, like lots of syllables, yeah. um, you know, like they were, like they literally sounded like Hebrew or French or, you know, these foreign languages. Uh-huh. Some of them were really beautiful. Some of them were really intense, sounded really aggressive. Um, they had this sort of full span of sounds and, and syllables and, you know, consonants and vowels. Whereas all of us kids were just, it was like, (laughs) really? So that's why um, once I'd received, I was like, great, finally I'm into this. I can fit in. I've got the tick of approval. I'm, I'm considered saved. And um, then when I sort of went to use this tongue amongst the, the adults and it just, it just didn't, didn't feel right. And that's, that's when my doubts first started when I was 10. Mm. 
And how was God portrayed to you? Typical sort of God-like figure. You know, we started with all the Old Testament stories where you get a sense of God's, I think, the tougher side of his character. Um, I, I write about one of the stories that really gripped me early on was um, uh, Isaac and his dad, Abraham, and God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, uh, basically, you know, As kill him up on a mountaintop. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, oh, God, God's pretty God's full pretty... on. He's a pretty full on character. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we had other stories like Daniel in the lion's den, um, you know, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace and, you know, all those, all those big tales, they're, they're pretty intense. And you had to act some of those uh, the, out in plays and stuff for the rest of the church, didn't you? Yeah. So, you know, that was fun. And there was that was another really good part of the church was all the sort of performance, which really built your confidence. And um, I enjoyed that. But that's how we learned those a lot of those stories. And, yeah, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know, a lot of it's kind of intense and um, gruesome. There's not like... Not, like it didn't seem like we were handpicking the stories full of like joy and mercy. Yep. What was the description of hell? Iron a lake of fire and brimstone, eternal anguish. Yeah, that was yeah. the vibe. Yeah. So it seems pretty obvious that you had a very strong sense of community connection and you did all mm. these really fun activities and did the camping trips and the big dinners and did everything together. And a lot about that sounds really good and something that in human nature would be a, a very positive thing. But then with this undertone of looming potential eternal damnation, what did that mean that the atmosphere was like, especially as you got a bit older? Was it tense? It always felt more positive than negative up to the point where it didn't. Um, but for me, that probably didn't come till about the age of 19 and 20. So it was always tough. There are always compromises. Like I, uh, one of the hardest rules that we faced was being not allowed to have a girlfriend outside of the church yep. and not allowed to have a girlfriend until the age of 17. Uh, and yeah, for anyone um, watching, listening to this, who's um, same sex attracted or, or anything other than heteronormative, there was absolutely no space for that whatsoever in in the views of our church, so very hard line on on those kinds of issues. Definitely wouldn't have been voting yes in the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite, <laughs> put it that way. And there was a line from the um, book where you yeah. say, the not drinking thing I could handle, not having a girlfriend was much harder. Well, alcohol didn't look that appealing to me as a teenager. Um, you know, my mates, right, I, yep, we're all meeting at Carl Park behind the footy stadium before the school social to to get pissed before we go to the school social and they turn up to the school social looking horrific. This sort of like dopey, dumb look in their eyes. Like they could either fall asleep or punch you in the face. And um, <laughs> then I just sort of looked yeah. around the community and I just, yeah. And then the first few um, alcohol like parties where they're alcohol in high school, like it was, I thought it was disgusting. So I didn't struggle too much with not drinking, but um, look, Maji was a hotbed of, Mudgy High School was a hotbed of beautiful, smart, intelligent <laughs> girls. And so not having a girlfriend at like 13, 14, 15, I was like, this sucks. Yeah, and how did that sexual repression affect you during those years? Because especially during those teenage years when the testosterone's really peaking and there's not much on teenage boys' minds other than girls a lot of the time or mm. discovering their sexuality. And you were conditioned to associate sex with guilt so how did you juggle that and i suppose a, a second part of that question did it take quite a bit to get over that association as you got into your adult life in terms of relationships with women so because the rules were quite clear and strict um and because you know i wasn't a rebellious kid like i i you know, I said before I found it hard, but I didn't find it impossible. And I'd bought into the dream as well. I wasn't, I wasn't always of a, of a super critical mind, even though I had my doubts. And I thought the idea of saving yourself for marriage was beautiful. Um, I totally bought into that. And I, I thought, 
how wonderful would it be to meet the love of my life and my my future wife and us neither of us having had had been with anyone else i thought that was a really nice thing that i actually genuinely aspired to so okay i wasn't allowed to have girlfriend from high school so then i never sort of got that close or that tempted at high school and then um i sort of had a few fleeting um mostly pen pal based romances with um girls in the church with and so then what's that with bridget, bridget. yeah that's not her real name by the way that right. was one of the names i had to change uh-huh, okay not, um, not bridget yeah <laughs> you know who you are bridget, not bridget. <laughs> yeah maybe maybe she's gonna come across this um yeah so these like cute little pen power relationships that were just ridiculous very um yeah very jane austen kind of era not not of the modern day but then you did end up having your first proper girlfriend who was kate and that was when mm. you were in your much later teenage years into your early 20s going to uni yeah so that yeah. was my first like going official kind of girlfriend yeah and so you had to actually ask your I... dad for permission to have a girlfriend didn't you yeah and she had to ask her dad because her dad was a pastor as well yeah um, so i was heading into my hsc exams and she was one year out of school already and um yeah had our first kiss on manly beach on the october long weekend um i'm guessing you weren't i'm guessing you weren't the best kisser to start off with (laughs) but she probably wasn't Um, either (laughs) you'd have to ask her that and that's not her real name either so yeah yeah (laughs) um but just to, to take you back throughout your whole schooling life how did the church affect that with kids who were outside of the church in terms of how they viewed you and how you viewed them and just the impact that it had on your life overall growing up? Yeah, well, I was um, really social and loved getting to know everyone at school and super active in sport and all elements of um, mudgy life. And then the, the church life was almost something that I lived in parallel and while I was, I didn't hide it. It was never something that I talked about. Um, I was a bit embarrassed by it secretly. And especially the details of it, like the speaking in tongues side of it. Yeah, People knew I went to church and that was okay in a country town to be a Christian, but being a hardcore Christian with us, you know, a fairly out there approach and um, out there, practices um that was not something i wanted to talk about in detail with anyone at school so i managed to find a way to live as as fuller and a satisfying high school existence as i could whilst also keeping my parents and the church community happy um and i believed that i was going to be able to keep that up i believed that i always saw my whole life in the church i never thought oh one day i'm out of here I thought, no, I'm going to try and make this work. I want to be with my family. I want to, I want to meet the Lord in the air. I believe in Him. I believe in, in, in the way we've been brought up. And I, I could, you know, try to imagine bring my own kids up in that, that world. But um, how yeah, do you got how a lot trickier you, as I got older? How did you see people outside of the church, especially those who weren't going to be saved based on what your church would say? Well, yeah, technically they weren't they were going to hell. So that's how the church told me to look at them. And we were often told to sort of the more hardcore people in the church, um, only saw them as kind of conversion targets. You know, why would you have, why would you have a deep friendship with anyone in the world? If you weren't trying to save them, you know, there was this even more hardcore line than, well, if you really love them, you've got to bring them to the Lord. You've got to try and convert them. Yeah. Otherwise you're just pretending to be their friend a real friend would, give them the, the the answer. You've got the solution right there. You you know the, the true gospel, the speaking in tongues gospel. So unless you're sharing that, you're selling yourself short and selling them and the Lord short. So that was the sort of approach. But I just wanted to be a normal teenager. So with my mates from school, I just was keen to be as normal as possible. And so I wasn't talking about speaking in tongues, I was talking about footy and motorbikes and yeah. girls. And you did bring some of your mates to the church 
on a few occasions. How did that pan out? Very uncomfortable. <laughs> Was that because you wanted to and, save them? Well, I felt a bit obligated to show them. And I was almost pretending to be okay and proud of, of what we had. And and there were parts of it I was proud of, um, but I knew that there was going to get to, we were always going to get to that bit of meeting where everyone started speaking out in tongues and it was going to be weird. Yeah. And your mates were like, this is pretty hectic, man. <laughs> well, I just didn't even talk to them about it. Like it just sort of happened. So there were, there were two times that, um, I remember really well and write about in the book where two, two good friends came and I, I, I brought the most open-minded friends, um, that I had and two of my closest friends. And I guess people that I, I trusted liked me enough for who I was and wouldn't reject me even when they found out my church was pretty weird. And they actually, they both knew someone else in the church, a guy who worked for them as their gardener. So they'd sort of been exposed to it. So I knew they knew it was pretty weird already. They just hadn't seen it firsthand. So yeah. I felt comfortable showing them. There were the other, and they, there were other kids that would have come along and I wouldn't have trusted them to not sort of go back to school and, and tell everyone how kind of out there it was. So yeah, the, those two friends came and we almost never talked about it again. They just came once, saw it and kind of went, right, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, then I never invited them back and they never asked to come back. Yeah. And when you see their reaction and obviously you value their opinion, but they're coming from a different world to you, did that mm. factor into your own thinking about how all that looked and whether it was real? Was that part of it? How much were you questioning that at that age? Because I think you say the first time you ever questioned if speaking in tongues was real or if it was being made up was when you were 10 and you were doing it in church and mm. you heard another kid doing it and it didn't sound all that uh, impressive. Mm. And then you're listening to yourself and you're like, am I, have I, is the Holy Spirit speaking through me or am I making it up? And you're like, wait, is everyone making it up? Because if everyone's yeah. making it up, then none of it's real. And, and that was the first time that you considered that. So did your friends looking at it and going like, hey man, this is, uh, thanks for bringing us, but this is pretty weird. Did that heighten that questioning? In the teenage years, the doubts, would go away for long periods of time. And I'd just be able to get on with living my, living my life, um, being in my, being in my safe little bubbles of, of footy and, and home life and then church life and keeping them a little bit separate. So no, it didn't, it didn't send me into big spirals of doubt at that age. The, the, the doubts kind of, they were there, but they weren't really vexing me. It wasn't till I left home and, and went to uni and spent a lot of time on my own. And this, these are the sort of things you, you notice more when you look back over your own life story and see where the big transitions are. And once, once I didn't have that bubbly close community around me, I was, I was boarding in the house of um, an old elderly couple on the Northern beaches of Sydney and would go to uni and didn't know anyone. And then would come home in the afternoon and didn't know anyone in my neighborhood and didn't have my, my three brothers around or my parents or my neighbors. Um, then I had a lot more time to think. And once the doubt intersected with loneliness, then it started to hurt. Um, but it was also coming at a time where I had to think about my future because I was going through those big transitions. When it was when it was in the safety of the school envelope, do you know what I mean? That envelope of time where you actually don't have to think about the future when you're yeah, at school because your decisions. future is... Yeah, your future is the next year at high school or the next term, you know, it's sort of there's a real structure set out for you. But once once I started really looking into the future and the, those sort of obvious structures were gone and I was lonely and then the doubts, that was like the trifecta that, that sort of made it painful. And talk about structure, not only did you have the structure of school like most other kids, but you had the extreme structure and discipline of church and the daily rituals and all the community gathering. And it sounds like you did a lot of stuff on a regular basis as a community is part of the reason that they keep everyone so busy, perhaps. So you've got less time to question things. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. And or less time to um, build up friendships with people outside the church, your worldly friends, as they were called. There's all yeah. this, um, 
coded language, by the way. I hope you picked it up in the book. Just these terms that you're like, ooh. Well, worldly, a, actually, some words. that yeah. is a word that I picked up on because is that suggesting that uh, people who were part of the church were otherworldly? Godly. Godly, above. Or righteous. Yeah. Yeah. And worldly was of the world, of the carnal sort of day-to-day -day urges rather than, um, you know, connecting with the, the spiritual life and, and So are you, are you still viewing yourselves as human? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah but we're just the, we're the, the fortunate ones who found the right path to God. That's how we're seeing ourselves. Some people had a bit more of a pious kind of t take on that. But essentially, you know, for us kids, it's like, we were told that we were lucky to be born into the church who happened to have it right. Yeah. Because um, it was just that so, one church that was right, wasn't it? And everyone else was wrong? Essentially, yes. Um, technically, they would say, well, any other church that has the same doctrine as us, as in speaking in tongues being the, the tangible sign of salvation, um, they had it right too, but... The, the head pastor, this guy, Lloyd Longfield in Melbourne, who's passed away now, he, his famous line was, we're not the only ones, but it's the only way. And then he would sort of have this um, funny look in his eye because we didn't know of any other church that had it the same way. So essentially what he, the double meaning was that there was no one else and this was the right church. Yeah. And there was a particular moment where the church was split in half over the notion of sex outside of marriage. So it, it, it came into law, I suppose you'd say, that for mm. half the church, I think it was, who chose to believe this, it was if you have sex outside of marriage, then you're going to get excommunicated. And then half the church thought that was going too far. Is that what happened? Basically, yeah. So when I was about 14, there was a massive schism in the church. And this actually happens with a lot of Pentecostal churches. They, they split off and someone has a, you know, a new idea of how things should be done and starts his own church. And it's a very unstructured sort of part of the Christian world compared to say Catholics and Anglicans, which have a much more locked in sort of structure of diocese and leadership and um, training. Yeah. So it, Dad, dad comes home, he's been at the big pastor's meeting in Sydney and he's like, oh, whew, that was pretty heavy. And um, comes home and says, so our, our leader, Pastor Lloyd, has said that we need to tighten up the fornication policy, basically. Um, and he decided that the previous punishment for fornication, sex before marriage, wasn't strong enough. So what they used to do was kick someone out for a few months and then the couple could come back if they got married or, you know, if they didn't want to get married, maybe one of them would come back and not the other one. Um, but they were sort of pretty tainted. It was still really serious, but that wasn't enough. Apparently he'd reread first Corinthians and realized he'd missed um, some key details. And actually they needed to be kicked out of the church forever. Right. No forgiveness. Yep. None of those sort of concepts you normally connect with Christianity. Uh -huh. They were out the window because the book of Corinthians was very clear about fornication. Of course. Um, and this is when you were, four, is, you were 14 is, and pretty, pretty interested in fornication at this point. <laughs> well, I'd, I, I was, I'd put my interest off into the future, but I, I, I did know that it would potentially be a problem down the track. <laughs> Um, but no, still at that age, I was like, oh, that's not going to be a big problem for me because I, I'm, I'm planning to um, have sex for the first time with my future wife. So I didn't see it as like an immediate threat, but I was, I was a bit, I definitely noticed that my dad chose the, the more stricter side of the church. So he had a choice to make. He could have gone because all these other pastors got up and did what I think was the right thing to do within that context, which is say, no, this goes a step too far. This contradicts the one of the core messages of the gospel. Um, and we shouldn't be doing this, you know. And what, what happened was my early teenage years were a lot cruisier, but around this time the church did take a much more hardline stance and this was the kind of symbol of it. But bringing that in meant that we ended up cutting off half the people who didn't agree with that policy change. So they started the Revival Fellowship and we remained the Revival Centres. And we went from Revival Centres of Australia to Revival Centres International. We had a rebrand. 
Um, and they, the other half took the name, the Revival Fellowship, which is ridiculous when you think about it. So it got split in half and we took the more, the more hard edge side of the church. And I was sort of thinking, dad, why, why, why are we going in the more hard line element? So it meant cutting more people off. It meant stricter rules. And then, um, at the next few um, camps that I went to, I was at these youngies camps by this stage for um, from mid-teens and in, people into their 20s and 30s, we would get this whole strict set of guidelines read to us. And so as I was getting older and I guess coming into contact with more parts of life and potentially more threats to the strictness of the church, the church also actually got more hardline during that time as well. And how did you see your dad making that decision and taking that stance at the time? Did you sort of disagree with it? You know, I've ended up a journalist where I disagree with people for a living and um, question their their logic, um, question their rhetoric, compare it to research or even their own actions, and and challenge people to be to be truthful. Um, but it's not how I grew up. My dad was very strict. Um, he was a he was a wonderful, loving father, but he was he was hardcore. There was very strict discipline, um, including physical discipline in our family. So we weren't brought up to question our father. And so, even though in the book I sort of I I sort of go through the questions that came into my mind, not for a second was I going to be standing up to my dad and saying, "Oh, dad, I think you've done the wrong thing." That that wasn't the kind of dialogue we had yeah i understand that were you more concerned with earning god's love or your dad's love do you think yeah it was it was a lot about my parents and my community and i was a firstborn child so i i liked pleasing my parents and i and i generally had so um yeah, I didn't really want to mess with that. I didn't like getting in trouble. I wasn't I wasn't a, a kid that sort of thrived in rebellion. So, yeah, I wanted to keep my parents happy and make them proud. I loved making my parents proud. Were you more afraid of God, though, or your dad? Oh, definitely my dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was like there was a connection between the two because he was the pastor. So his... He had sort of the authority of God as a leader of the church. So that it was actually kind of the combination. He he could also he could also decide whether or not I was still in the church. You know, if I'd done something bad enough, it would have been him that would have said, Well, look, sorry, Tom, we're gonna to have to put you out of fellowship for a few weeks or months or permanently if I really went for it. Which is like a suspension or a go sort of have a timeout in the corner type rule. <laughs> Exactly. It, it was the case, though, that your parents weren't born into the church. They found it later in life, mm. having already had quite a few experiences, especially your mum, including traveling overseas. Mm. And they would tell you those stories. Did that make you want to have your own experience without the restrictions of the church? Or when you heard those stories and you're like, okay, mum and dad weren't born into what I was born into, what did that make you think? Yeah, it was a bit of a mix. Um, on one hand, it sort of validated their experience of coming to the revival centers and speaking in tongues, and it affirmed the the course of action they they'd taken and their beliefs. So that was the key narrative. But then there was a sub narrative that brought up some sort of more subconscious kind of questions. You know, once again, I didn't have the critical thinking hat on. At that point, I, I guess you sense a bit of that more, more in the book because I've been able to look back and realize what was going on. Um, so the sub-narrative was that my parents were wild. My, my dad had um, run away from being conscripted in the army, moved to Sydney, was a surfer, hitchhiked around the place, then went in the army, then, um, then ended up up in the bush, up in Arnhem Land, working in a mine and becoming really good friends with the local community up there and then becoming a mad hippie, um, studying journalism at Bathurst and, um, you know, living that loose kind of 70s hippie life. And my mum had travelled through India, through the Middle East, all the way to Europe in the 70s at the age of like 23. And she'd gone to a um, 
a fancy private school in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and partied in King's Cross. And, you know, it was all, it was never celebrated in the, in the, the church testimonies. It was more like, oh, this is what I'd done before and I lost my way and then I found God. But yeah, yeah. I, while I, my ears were drawn to the, the dominant narrative, I was also <laughs> listening to the sub-narrative going, that sounds wow, good. They were pretty. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty cool. My parents were actually cool, yeah. and I wouldn't mind doing some of that kind of stuff. Like, I don't want to lose my way, but I like traveling around the world. Or that that sounds awesome. And the people they were meeting, and oh, this this um, Wolfgang bloke that Mum was um, living with in Germany, the drug um, dealer. Before she was married. They, yeah, <laughs> he sounds cool. And yeah, so that's my my mind was kind of a little bit split. But it was very much framed like my, my life only got good when I found the church and before that it was all sin and you don't want to go there, Simba. And you were sort of like, oh, I don't know, it sounds like yeah. it'll be all right. <laughs> uh, exactly. At, at what point did you start to feel more embarrassment for your alignment with the church? So in high school, I was able to kind of stage manage it a bit more because I had these long-term relationships with people and they saw all sides of my personality and my character. And, you know, I could prove myself in different environments in, you know, sport, friendship, academically, um, on the motocross track, um, whatever it was. Um, and then my church life was just one element of that. Yeah. And then it got harder at university where I make friends with people and I was making friends from scratch and, those things that were awkward to explain were were more difficult to work around. It's like, oh, cool, we, we want to come to the uni bar or, you know, and drinking was a lot more of a thing. Whereas, you know, in high school, you've got a lot more pursuits, a lot, a lot more different ways to connect with people. But the older you get in an Australian society, um, unless you're still playing a lot of sport or other sorts of hobbies, yeah. you know, it's drinking is the main way drink. that people... Yeah. Yeah, and so that got harder to work around at the same time I'd moved to Sydney and um, the the church assembly was bigger there. And there was more of a culture of pretty much having all of your social life within the church. Whereas in Mudgee, I actually had a really good balance. So that's when it got a bit harder to explain and I became less comfortable with it myself. And so, yeah, the new friends that I made at uni basically I met some people that were so nice to me. You know, I was a, I was a massive dork from yeah. the country. Yeah. So naive. And I met these great kids from Sydney and um, they were actually, they actually really were really nice to me. I was always fearing that I'd be rejected for my, for what I was embarrassed about, about myself. But I kind of kept that in a bit of a pigeonhole, didn't tell them too much about it and then just tried to be myself. And I had a great time, but, I looked back and I was really sad that I never made the most of those friendships. Like I didn't really make those friends for life at uni because I couldn't give them my whole self because so much of my life was in the, the church and there was so much I didn't want to talk about and wasn't proud of. Yeah, so it was like there was that barrier there where you, you couldn't get past and establish those real deep connections because they were going to have to see that part of your life and that wasn't something you were willing to reveal. Was it also the case that there was more pressure to sort of choose one or the other, you know, given that you're, most people, as they get older, their, their whole social life starts to re revolve around the church after they leave school. Did that make you feel like, well, I've got to either do that or I've got to do something else? It ramped up the pressure. It, 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 yeah, exactly as you explained, it became a lot more about the church, which meant that I, I was forced to question whether the, the way the church was making me live was the right way to go. And I was forced to wear more of a, wear more of a price for it. Whereas in, in Mudgee at high school, I, I managed to have the best of all worlds. Yeah. Whereas that was, that was much harder in Sydney um, where the church was more hardcore and I couldn't get as much balance. And that was a reason why, when the doubts came back with more space and a little bit of loneliness that they, they started to resonate a lot more. Cause I, I was really thinking, is this really how I want to live? Is this really the place I want to occupy in this life? How did choosing a profession as a journalist, as someone who asks questions impact all of that? 
Well, that came much later. So um, when I was at uni, I, I was going to study journalism. That, that was what I hoped my career might be in. But then I sort of got worried that I, I wouldn't have enough money and my dad instilled a little bit of his own financial insecurity into me. So I did a commerce degree Yeah, because I was so lonely, dislocated and scared in my first year of uni. I just became a mega nerd and um, just really dug into my studies and um, just ended up just absolutely shocking myself getting these really good marks in, in subjects like economics and stuff. I was like, oh, I'm really good at economics. It's That's amazing. Weird. It's amazing yeah. what you can do when you're not drinking. Yeah, when you're not drinking and you're full of fear. It's, um, <laughs> it's a, really clarifies the mind, you know. Um, yeah, so I ended up working in an investment bank and it was during those years when it really started to flare up with the church and it actually wasn't several years later until I started the journalism journey properly. And during that period, you also had this relationship that we mentioned earlier and there was pressure to make that more and more serious and she was pressuring you to sort of reinstate or bump up your commitment to God and the church and that's when you really started to feel more of these feelings of actually that's not the path I want to go down or you were certainly apprehensive to go, yeah, sure, and and proclaim that. Yeah, so because the commitment to the relationship and the church came as a joint deal, um, I felt really suffocated and it, it forced me really to, to think about the future even more and what I really wanted. So um, I was dating what I thought was the coolest, most beautiful girl in church and I... I really loved her um, desperately, actually. Um, I was like a little puppy dog around her initially, but then at, then at the age of 19, she's like, so when are we, when do you think we'll get married? I was like, what? What are you talking? Like, you see, you, one, do you actually like me and you really want to marry me? And two, like, not, not yet. I'm a second year uni student completely struggling and lost. I can't. I can't see myself in that phase of life. And that was a weird moment. And it was a strangely where I got my power back in that relationship. And it sort of shifted into equilibrium. But then towards the end of what was three years, um, I just wanted to have fun. And I was starting to feel more confident. Those friendships at uni went up another level. And um, yeah, I sort of tuned out of the relationship a little bit and started occasionally going to uni parties or might, you know, go to a nightclub here or there, still not drinking, not really pushing any boundaries, but that started to really worry her because these were symbols that I wasn't going to completely play by the rules. And that made me um, a bit of a, an unpredictable um, quantity. And she herself was sort of a representation of the church. Like you said, you were choosing to opt out of the relationship, but really you were struggling because you were opting out of the church and you knew that they were one and the same. Well, the relationship norms were all governed by the church and um, she just happened to be to take it all in hook, line and sinker with no, no questioning. She really believed um, in the doctrine of the church and that all the rules that... Um, were born out and through how, that doctrine. Um, yeah. How are you going with the abstinence part of things at that point, having been in an adult relationship for years? Yeah. Well, finally, I was starting to be a bit more, a bit more tested, and you know, occasionally it got a little bit saucy, like saucy <laughs> for a, for a Christian that is, not yeah. for a, like a normal person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of, was, uh, heavy, um, heavy petting, some uh, hands over the pants yeah. type stuff. <laughs> Yeah, at the most. Real hardcore um, stuff. So <laughs> I give I give a pretty um a pretty vivid description of um what blue balls feels like in the book. Yeah, I remember reading that this morning and you're talking about how it actually hurt you and you had to stop. <laughs> Haven't you been there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of young men will feel your pain on that one. <laughs> totally. Um so and then it got to a point where you ended up traveling overseas as well for quite some time, spending some time in Europe and then letting your hair down more, trying alcohol for the first time and uh, smoking a joint as well and starting to feel like, actually, this is the real me. 
you talk a bit about that point in your life? Yeah. So um, that was that was a huge life changing journey. At the end of uni, I won this um, two grand scholarship for an essay, and so I thought, oh, before I start my full time job working at a bank. Um, I'll go on this six week trip and I just had no idea how much that trip was going to change me again. Um, felt deeply lonely and challenged at certain points of that trip, but then opened up and met people and had the most mind blowing adventures where I just em- embraced the full freedom of life and, mm. um, didn't feel like people were really watching me and I could just sort of say yes to things. And, um, I just became absolutely intoxicated by life on this trip. And I met some people that completely blew my mind, broke all the stereotypes of what bad worldly people were supposedly like. Yeah. Um, and also from one guy, this guy, John from Scotland, who I met um, in a backpackers in Barcelona, and he was this crazy cat. He, he, he brought to me a very different perspective on Jesus and showed me another another way of seeing Christianity that actually resonated a lot more with what I what I felt it should feel like love and charity and forgiveness and caring about other people a much more practical um, charitable view of the Bible not this sort of critical um, dark heavy um, strict, uh, and ultimately quite negative view that had been slowly, slowly kind of pushed down more strongly on me. Yeah, so much less about punishment and much more about love and sharing and community and the things that the positive things that you'd seen throughout your life but hadn't been the focus and less so it seems as you got older and the church took that more hardline stance. What did you realize when you were on this trip about life in general and about yourself? I realized I wanted to live a big, beautiful life. I wanted to be open hearted and to connect with people and feel that passion of life. And I could see that the strictness of the church wasn't letting me do that. So what did you do with that from there? How did you realize that and then make those tough decisions from then on? Well, that's where it got really tricky and that's where that's where the book kind of really slows down and goes into detail about how that all played out and how hard that was. So I get home from this trip and I my 21st birthday is a few days later um, and I have to confront um, Kate, the girlfriend, and be honest about the fact that I broke all the rules overseas and that I actually had met this girl from the Netherlands and traveled for a week with her up to Switzerland and um, shared a bed with her, but never kissed her, but all these weird lines that I'd drawn, <laughs> but essentially I'd been, I'd been unfaithful essentially. Um, and so that instantly blew up the relationship. Boom. That was over. Then I had my 21st birthday and all my friends and loved ones were there from the church. And I was like, Oh, this is not going to be as easy as just like, throwing my life in the bin like i love these people they've traveled here from all over australia to be here in my backyard for my 21st birthday but then um, a few weeks later my brother and i went to the mardi gras um and that was against the rules but we were like "Eh, let's just go anyway and i saw at the mardi gras this this same energy that i'd seen in europe in on the streets of barcelona that had just been so exciting i was like oh there's all this freedom and, and, and beauty and passion right here in Sydney. Um, but I just have been shut off to it because of all the strict rules. So I turned up to church the Sunday after the Mardi Gras and they called my brother and I into a meeting and said, uh, we have reason to believe you have attended Sydney's gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. Like, wow, someone knew about this and has dubbed us in. Maybe they were there. I don't know how this got back to them, but, um, they booted us out of the church, put us on a suspension. We said, oh, how long are we out for? And they said, oh, we'll get back to you in a few weeks. So I sensed it was going to be a fairly short-term suspension, maybe about a month, and I sort of thought about all the other people who'd been kicked out for something of that kind of magnitude and guessed it would be about a, a month. And um, when we left, Sam and I were driving home from church, and I was like, 
this is awesome. I'm out. I'm never going back. And he was bursting into tears, wondering how we're going to tell our parents. And um, it wasn't the end point. No, I got dragged back into the church in, in probably the most emotion, one of the most emotionally intense moments of the book. And when you finally did leave, how did that affect your relationship with your parents? And what was the hardest part about really cutting that off? Yeah, like the moment where I left after the Mardi Gras was kind of fun and I still had this like excitement and momentum from that trip overseas. But then I went back in sort of against my own judgment, thought, you know, before I gave it all up, I was sort of this guy sort of boxed me into this really manipulative way of thinking. He said, what if you've been born into the right church, the only church that has it right, and you haven't given it 100% and you walked away disappointing everyone? Have you really given it a hundred percent? And technically we always do things for ourselves. So maybe I hadn't given myself a hundred percent and I sort of got boxed into his way of thinking. And so I gave it another go. And then I got kicked out again when the girl from Europe came to visit me. And the second time, I still don't know exactly why the second time really hit me. And it was like my world was ripped out from under me. And suddenly I was really stressed and then they kicked me out of my house and I was, had nowhere to stay. And I had this girl from Europe out in Sydney and my parents were no longer understanding where I was at. Whereas before they'd sort of understood, they saw some, some of the same problems with the church and sort of agreed with me. But, um, the second time it just, it just got dark and my parents didn't understand me. They didn't know what was going on. Um, with this girl Anna from Europe and I just felt completely alone and I started feeling this ache in my chest this li- literal physical pain and so I thought oh maybe this is God sending me a message like that's how sort of intense the logic was yeah imagining oh well, what if I did this this and this and I tried to see if just thinking about that pathway would give me more ease um, or sort of take away the pain in my heart so I was playing out all these scenarios and wondering if I'd stepped off the path of my destiny or disappointed God or done the wrong thing. Um, and so, yeah, there was a really dark, tough period for me there. Like wondering if you were being tested and you'd failed and this was all meant to be part of it, but you weren't up to it and going through all these thoughts in your head. At that point in your life, uh, in terms of your actual mental health, did you ever feel like you were really struggling with that, be it depression or anxiety or something not diagnosable Uh, how did you view your own mental health as a young man at that time so this was 2002 i hadn't even heard of mental health um i didn't know really what depression or anxiety was and i didn't look at it through that framework at all i looked at it through the framework of am i doing the right thing by god that was my framework and so if i was feeling bad it's because I was doing the wrong thing by God. It wasn't like a a diagnosable mental health problem. So when it all blew up and I'm kicked out of my house and I'm, I'm at work trying to get my work done, but all these thoughts are swirling in my head and I'm not, not knowing where I'm going to move to out of my house. My heart was pumping. I couldn't think, you know, what, what was really happening was I was, I was being made to feel really anxious because of what was going on in my life. Um, and that's why my heart was racing. It wasn't God sending me a, a message. Um, it was like, you know, it was physical stress. But you're told, taught to think that mental health-wise, it all comes back to God. And if you're feeling bad or you're not where you want to be, then that's all based on your commitment or lack thereof to God and not because of mental health, which didn't exist. Exactly, yeah. It was like your happiness came through your relationship with God. And where did all this lead when you you finally stepped away and then became a journalist and then have gone on to live this big, rich life that you wanted to live, which seems so far from the restrictions placed on you as throughout your whole younger years, you know, it seems from the outside looking in that you have lived an amazing life and a very interesting life and gone so much further than you might have imagined. Um, Mm. yeah. What's that been like for you with that point of reference from, from how you grew up? Yeah. Well, 
on hack we ended up doing lots of stuff about mental health and it 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 very quickly to me felt like the most important powerful stuff we ever did on the show hearing people open up and share their stories and so for all those years i was sitting there hearing these amazing brave stories from people about moments where they'd felt depressed or grief stricken or anxious or um reached out you know to to doctors or psychologists or had gone on medication to deal with it and like you know the more modern way we think about treating mental health and um i guess i never really like it's a good question you ask how whether i saw it as mental health at the time and and i didn't but i later saw it through that prism and understood a lot more about it um so i i came to see i guess how how often in these stressful situations like it does does put pressure on your mental health and um yeah how many people that affects and how the the sort of the desire for connection and community and um or when that fails it just instantly throws people into these spirals that can then get deeper and and worse and for some people you know connects with more hereditary mental health problems that make them particularly vulnerable to these big triggers in life and so yeah i came to understand a lot more of those sort of life events in the mental health framework um and i also was on this other journey of once i stepped away from religion and it was a sort of a interesting journey i first left my church and then went to a whole bunch of others before i realized i actually didn't believe in god as the bible portrayed god um see mental health almost as almost achieving what that more old school traditional um bible based spirituality was trying to do both trying to get a sense of balance and happiness but i think um personally i believe working on your mental health is a much more reliable way to to get a sense of balance rather than um believing in the god of the bible and how has your mental health been throughout your career since that point um well you know i cast off my whole belief system and i cast off i had to step away from my whole community and so there were a lot of times where i felt really lonely again and didn't know where I was going and I felt like a loser because I'd sort of had to start my life again at like 24, 25 and I'd moved to the inner city of Sydney and there are all these cool smart people around who had loads of friends and, yeah. and I felt like a complete outlier who was rebuilding my life from scratch again and at the time I thought oh maybe I'm a loser maybe I'm not interesting maybe these people don't want to be friends with me because I just got nothing going on you know and so looking back that that wasn't like you could see that through the mental health frame you know that i was feeling disconnected and depressed and i would go through sort of through these spirals of of questioning my self-worth and really yeah it was i was just feeling a bit depressed and anxious but i've never had like a full-blown mental health crisis um or um needed to seek direct treatment in that way but i've i've sort of learned a lot about it and spoken to a lot of people who who've gone right in there and lots of friends and family who've um done um cognitive behavioral treatment and really benefited from using medication at different points in their life and also just benefited from a better understanding in our society about the way these things can affect people. But your foundation of identity was completely rocked and you had to adjust from mm. a life serving God to a life where God plays no part, which is there's almost no bigger shift than that. Who did you find yourself to be just as Tom Tilly without religion? Well, I just spent many years kind of striving to find connection and passion and and meaning and so if you think about all the different threads of of church life that I had that we talked about earlier on in the interview of having a sense of community a reason for doing things um a structure to my life 
um, support, um, inspiration, you know, like that, that deeper sort of awe and wonder. And, um, yeah, basically over the next decade or so up until sort of, I felt comfortable enough to open up and tell this story where I felt my life had kind of gotten to a good point. I just slowly built my life block by block of those different elements. I, I found my people and I realized that for me, probably because of the way I'd grown up, um, community was crucial to me, like knowing people and having close friends and lots of people around. So yeah, I just, that, that became a real focus for me. And that was mostly through, it often was through the prism of partying. Like I just loved going to house parties, meeting people, going to clubs, being up all night. Um, I, I loved it. I, I got, definitely I relate to you there. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, people see that as kind of destructive and it can be. Um, but I don't think it, it, it really was for me. I just had a thirst for people and kind of finding my place. And maybe looking back, I wish I had a bit more um, self-security that I didn't maybe need to, to find that validation in meeting and um, being liked by other people. But, but in many ways, it was, it was awesome. I loved being out and meeting people and, and I, you know, I came to love people and came, people came to love me and we connected and we had good times and bad times. And I made a huge sea of amazing friends in Sydney and around the country. And then, you know, through triple J, I made a whole nother community of people in the media and um, all kinds of people right across society. Um, and then in the, I was in the band with client liaison and we just had friends all around the country going into festivals and rolling into nightclubs afterwards. And um, eventually I, I just felt like I had this big, beautiful, you know, community all around me on that really close personal level, but also on this much bigger, more exciting kind of um, level. So community was a huge one for me. I found sort of that, that deeper sense of awe in, in nature um, I also get that same kind of deep euphoric feeling sometimes when I'm reading about history and just feeling like I'm getting this true, deeper understanding about who the hell we are as human beings and that so many of the people who've gone before us have been grappling with all the same problems. And so maybe the way we look at mental health at this point in history, you know, through, um, you know, neuroscience and, um, you know, diagnosable conditions like um, anxiety, depression, or bipolar. I think, you know, psychologists, historians, philosophers have been grappling with the same things for so long. And for some reason that makes me feel connected. Um, and then my work was a big passion, a source of passion for me as well. So yeah, I sort of just really worked to build a life that um, served all those needs that I had. And so that that's kind of been my approach to life is like to, to make it happen. Um, and to fill it up with things that I find fulfilling. Yeah, and from listening to you talk, it's all based on that word connection, which we know is the opposite of addiction. And even the church, it's not like nothing positive came out of it. It seems like you took a, a huge amount of positives out of being raised that way, although there was such a negative side to it as well. But connection is omnipresent through it all. And in your life after leaving the church, you've been able to find connection elsewhere and build that into your life and make your life about that and create connections between other people. And that's something that's consistent within the church and outside of it, because I think that's the most fundamental thing to human nature and what we all need and want. But obviously there's a, there's a lot of different ways to get it and no one way is correct, but to have a life devoid of it is hell but just perhaps, yeah, not in a literal sense. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I'm conscious that Tommy got to um, got to get moving. But um, what do you have? What do you put your faith in now? <sighs> I guess it's it's not in in one thing. It's um, it's like it's it's. I, I just put it in living, living a fulfilling life and, and working towards that in a, in a practical way. And also the other thread to it is accepting uncertainty and knowing that you're going to be rattled. You're going to feel alone. Um, 
you're going to feel completely out to sea and that is totally fine. It's part of the human experience. In fact, it often inspires you to live your most powerful moments or come up with the biggest solutions or deepest thoughts. Um, so yeah, it's all those other things I mentioned, like the, like the real building blocks in life. And, and as you say, a key part of that is community connection, friendship, love, knowing people being open and honest with them. Um, but then building in resilience to that as well. So first, as I said, knowing that like the shaky moments will come, but you can ride them out, you know, you can breathe your way through them um, and trust that it's going to be okay. I, and I guess look, when I think about it, underlying all of that for me personally, is just this, just this kind of optimism. I just feel like life is beautiful and it's going to be okay. That is my underlying belief. And I, that might be a hangover from the Christian days as well, where I sort of still think that there's got to be a reason for this. And the, the ending won't surely just be stuck stuck in a hole with no consciousness or memory. Like I still sort of think there's, there's something beautiful even after we die. So I, I just sort of have this vague, undescribable um, positivity. And, and that is, I guess, what sort of um, buoys me through a lot of the other moments um, and sits underneath that more specific kind of framework. Well said. And Speaking Tongues is really an enthralling book that's written with that tone that makes you want to read more. And it's very relatable. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, unfortunately, having to skip through it on a, on a first reading, uh, just sort of brushing through it. But I'm looking forward to sitting down and really reading it uh, in detail. Where can people get your book? Um, yeah, so Speaking in Tongues is in um, all major bookstores or um, if you're watching this online, just go to Booktopia and search Speaking in Tongues, Tom Tilly, and um, that's the easiest way to to get it. So, yeah, um, yeah, thanks for having a look at it, Callum. And, yeah, look, I I do hope that it, it can offer people, um, I guess, an encouragement that when life feels crazy that there's a way through it and that if you're growing up in a world that doesn't make sense to you, that you can methodically question it, break it down and find out which bits are really truthful and what, what really is healthy for you and, and what isn't. But know that while that might feel really daunting at the start, there is a way through that. Yeah, and you embody that and it's a powerful message. So thanks, Tom. Really appreciate your time and, and congratulations with the book because it's a great piece of work and a tremendous story, mate. Oh, thanks so much. And yeah, um, you've really gotten in there and engaged with the real crux of it. So I really appreciate it, Carl. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video. So follow Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.